All right, so we realize that um, there might be some of you in the room that the term biblical counseling might be new for, and so I just wanted to take a very quick moment and define it and clear up any potential misunderstandings. So biblical counseling is the belief that the Bible, the Word of God, is sufficient for all of life and godliness, and the reason that we use the Bible is because the Bible is from the one true eternal unchanging God, okay? So when Paul tells the pastor, the young pastor in Timothy, um, all scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work, he meant it. So biblical counselors want to say, what does God say about this? And how can I, as a sister or brother in Christ, come alongside you and help you to know God and apply his word to your sufferings and your sins. And we believe that we we have answers to our problems of sin and suffering in an actual person in Christ, okay? So because of his life, death, and resurrection, we we have hope. So biblical counseling is full of hope. Um, We also just wanted to say that It teaches that we are body and souls, so we still believe in medicine and blood tests and EKGs and MRIs and eating healthy and sleeping well. And so all of those things should be taken into account when we are um, helping someone with their problems. Um, But like Jen mentioned, psychology is our, our society's latest version of trying to answer these questions. And sadly, they're often with very tragic results. Um, Biblical counselors do not believe that God left his people without what they needed to flourish until about 150 years ago. So another component of biblical counseling is the local church. And so we believe that it's best done in the context of your local church. And that's what your pastors and elders do here at RCC. They look to the Bible as their authority for their care for you. Um, My husband, Bo, is actually in the process of getting his ACBC certification I am too. Um, and so we're, we're committed to training up and helping others with this. Um, if you don't worship here, a good question to ask your pastor is, do you practice biblical counseling? And if they don't or try to send you outside of the church, um, that should probably give you a little pause. Um, we are going to try to put together some resources for you guys at the end of the day, a handout in case you have any questions, but you can pull me aside or one of the elders' wives or Jen or Katie, I'm sure. And with that, Bethany, I don't see you, but you're, you're next. Okay, thank you. Hi, good morning. I want to first, before I introduce Katie, I want to bring greetings to you from our Women in Courage team in Canada. Um, Before I left on this trip, I was at my ladies' Bible study, and my pastor's wife and all of our other ladies from our ladies' Bible study want to communicate to you that they have been praying for you all as you go through this weekend and um, process all the things that Jen and Katie are going to be teaching you today. I was thinking about how... um, How I wanted to introduce Katie when Alice asked me. Katie asked me to promise I wouldn't make her cry. But I said, well, I can't promise I won't make myself cry because, you know, you know me. Um, But I was thinking about, like, I have a lot of people in my life that are slowly getting to know Katie more because now we're in the same church again. And 
we just kind of run in the same circles. And so it's really exciting to me when I ask somebody, do you know Katie Morin? And she, and they say, yes, I do. And I'm like, oh, so great. I'm so happy you know Katie. Um, so at the end of today, you will also know Katie. And I'm really excited for you for that. Um, because partly because Katie is just such a valuable um, contributor to the church. And she has helped me increase my love of the sufficiency of scripture. And Katie joined our Women Encouraged team in 2017. So she has been part of this from for a long time. We started in 2015, and she came on um, a few couple years later. But she's just um, been such a blessing to me, and even in the seasons when we're not super active on social media or anything like that, she's just continued to help me grow in my love for the Lord. Um, as I thought more about like what I would want you to know, um, I could tell you all about her accomplishments. You can read a lot about those on the speaker biography on page eight. But I was also thinking about how um, Katie is one of the most sincere and least hypocritical people that I know. She is deeply familiar with her subject matter today and in a way especially that enables her to share honestly and biblically. I, it really would be obnoxious if I told you everything I like about Katie, <laughs> but I want you to know also that she is an important part of our family. Um, and I think, again, this is because I have, I and my family have gotten to know her better. As we've gotten to know her better, we've grown to appreciate the gift that she is to the family of God. And we've understood how God has used her presence and testimony to enrich our family. She is an excellent example and guide to my kids and a great encouragement to me and my husband. And I'm, again, really excited to introduce you to my friend Katie Morin. We uh, flew in on Friday, Thursday. We flew in on Thursday, so we had to go through customs. And when you go through customs, they always ask a bunch of questions. They want to know where you're going, what you're doing. So I always kind of brace myself. I think, okay, maybe, hopefully I'm not planning anything illegal. Because <laughs> you never know. So I, I go up to the guy, and he says, where are you going? I'm going to a, a conference. And he gives me a look. He says, what kind of conference? Like a women's conference? He's like, what kind of women's conference? A Christian women's conference. And he said, looked at me and he said, oh, so it's for real women. <laughs> so I'm glad to be amongst a bunch of real women. <laughs> it's good to be here. Um, I also want to commend you guys for coming out for a whole weekend talk on shame. That's not an easy feat. That's kind of a heavy topic to say, yes, that's how I want to spend my weekend. So good for you. Give yourselves a pat on the back for that. Um, although shame is coming up more and more in conversation, more and more on social media, we're seeing it kind of everywhere. So it does make sense that we are going to talk about that today. Um, so we're just, I've been reading lots of different books, I've seen TED Talks, um, there's a lot of mental health platforms, more and more people are having a lot to say about shame. So the current obsession with shame has positive and negative effects. On the positive end, it's really good that we are talking about it, um, about something that's technically a topic that's been shamed, let's put aside, we haven't really talked about it. 
We always knew it was there. Um, but now bringing it out into the open, we're allowed to study it more and understand it better. And with greater awareness comes greater need for us to share our opinions on the topic. And the overwhelming consensus about shame is that it is a toxic emotion. Even a quick perusal of social media, you'll see lots of slides like this. Shame hasn't changed anyone. If, it, if anything, it's making people better at hiding their behavior. And then the cure for that is just having a better relationship with yourself. Or we can have this one. Shame has never propelled anyone into growth, healing, or evolution of thought. Or how about this one? Even if we do wrong, accountability is helpful. Compassion is helpful. Apology and forgiveness are helpful. But shame is not. So again, there's lots of alternatives they're giving for shame, but shame itself, bad. And then we have this classic quote from Carl Jung, Jung or however you say his last name. Uh, shame is a soul-eating emotion. Is that true? Does shame have no positive purpose? Would we actually be better off in a world without shame? So these are important questions and they're not easily answered with a snappy Instagram post. Um, it's almost like though we've decided that there's only two possible categories to put shame into. You can either have it's only good or it's bad and because most of the effects of shame that we've seen seem to be negative, we immediately say, okay, shame itself has to be bad. But I don't think it's as easy to define shame in that way, and it's not as simple to treat shame in the way that the Instagram post might like us to. As much as we'd like to divide everything into categories of good or bad, this strategy does not allow for any nuance or depth of understanding into shame. We tend to avoid looking into the purpose of things that we don't like. So if you don't look at something's purpose, you might conclude that there isn't one, or at least not a good one. So, but don't misunderstand me, I'm not here saying that, yay shame, it's really great, hooray. There's a lot of really bad shame experiences that we've had in our lives, and a lot of them are unhelpful and even paralyzing. So I'm not going to say it's always good all the time. But what I do want to do with you in my time today is examine shame so that we can understand why we experience shame, specifically the shame that comes after we sin. So what is shame? What is its purpose? Is it good, bad, or something else? And what can we do about it? So let's start with this question. How does the world define shame? We probably all know what it feels like, but we're going to go to Brene Brown right now for a textbook definition. I don't know if many of you have heard of her, but she is a well-known speaker, um, has a lot of books, TED Talks, those sorts of things. She talks about shame, vulnerability, and it's her research and contribution to the discussion that have informed much of our modern view of shame. So her definition goes as follows. I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we have experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. So this definition has resonated pretty much with everyone who has read or listened to Brene Brown. We've all experienced some sort of shame in our lives. It's manageable maybe for some, for others, it's going to be more debilitating. But however you experience it, Brene's Brown's definition rings true. When we feel shame, we feel wrong. We feel like no one loves us or wants us. 
For Brene, the root of this feeling of shame is a false belief system, a belief that we are flawed, bad, or otherwise unfit to be loved and feel like we belong. So how did we start believing that? What, what changed for us? So according to Brown, it starts with unrealistic expectations, it starts with disconnection from those we care about, and conflicting choices about how we should live our lives. Any one of these is hard enough to deal with on its own, but when it's combined, when we get all three together, it creates a situation where we're trying to choose which of the impossible standards we need to live up to, which were created by people or communities that we love, but it's that same community that might decide not to love us or accept us once they know how we've failed to do everything we can to stay in their good graces. Excuse me. This fear and anxiety and dread, this is something we can all identify with. And it's something we're seeing ident also identified more in the broader culture. Has anybody here seen the Barbie movie? Nobody. Oh my goodness. Okay, a few people. You're brave souls. And you're like, I'm going to admit to that. Okay, I saw it, and it was fascinating. I do, I do recommend watching it for certain, you'll see some different um, worldviews coming into play. But there was one quote that stood out to a lot of people. I'm just going to show the tail end of it. Um, one of the characters goes on to a rant about feeling overwhelmed by all the different expectations that people have, have over her. You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. It's too hard. It's too contradictory. And I'll skip down to the bolded part. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. A quote like this caused my roommate's coworker to call the Barbie movie the single greatest movie she had ever seen. Because it resonates with her, and it resonates with a lot of people with our personal experiences. We tend to accept this conclusion that the standards that we try to live up to, the standards that fuel our feelings of unworthiness and our fears of disconnection, these standards lead to a devastating conclusion about ourselves. I am not enough. I might even be bad. I am, there's something wrong with me, and that fills me with shame. Over enough time, with enough repetition, shame builds up and builds up, so we pull away. We do a lot of the same things that Jen described. We make ourselves small. We think of ourselves in dehumanizing, way, humanizing ways. Shame forces us to see ourselves as terrible people to our core, rather than thinking of ourselves as mostly good people who can make mistakes. So this leads to Brene Brown's conclusion about shame, and again, it's one you'll see a lot on social media. I don't believe that shame is helpful or productive. In fact, I think shame is much more likely to be the source of destructive, hurtful behavior than the solution or cure. Left unchecked, shame can leave, lead to extremely negative and potentially devastating consequences. So if that is the destination shame seems to be pointing us to, then we sh could agree. Shame is leading us nowhere good, and therefore we're going to see people like Brene Brown putting emphasis on guilt rather than shame. You'll see things like this. Um, shame isn't guilt. Shame is a focus on self, and guilt is a focus on behavior. Guilt says I did something bad. Shame says I am bad. Guilt says I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. 
From this perspective, guilt would allow us to own our own failings without having to see ourselves as bad people. We are simply good people who make mistakes. And therein lies Brene's solution. We need to change our beliefs about ourselves. We need to stop believing lies and start believing the truth. Believe you're good, that you're enough, that you belong. And then you're going to belt out these lyrics from The Greatest Showman. You're going to be like, I'm not going to let them break me down to dust. I, I, we are glorious. I am whom I meant to be. This is me, right? Some of you are singing this in your heads, I know. <laughs> so this might as well be the theme song um, to Brene Brown's problem of shame. For her, shame's power comes from shrinking us, minimizing us, discounting us. But shame's power cannot withstand a woman who loves herself, right? Who says to herself, I am enough. I'm not going to hide in the shadows. I'm going to have empathy on myself instead and on others. And I'm going to show vulnerability in my journey. So that doesn't mean I'm perfect or I'm going to get everything right. But it does mean I'm going to stop performing and pretending and proving myself. And I'm just going to stand in that knowledge that I am worthy enough, good enough, strong enough, and I can be loved and live with joy and confidence. So it might be tempting at this point to agree with her that shame is unhelpful at best and life-destroying at worst. And her, her solution seems really good. It sounds freeing, it sounds joyful, it's all those catchphrases that were like, yeah, I want to feel that way, that's how I want to live. And if she is right, maybe we do need to get rid of shame. If shame causes nothing but pain and has no other apparent use other than making us feel bad about ourselves, then maybe it is truly time that shame went the way of the dodo. But here's where we need wisdom and discernment. If everything she said was an obvious lie, we could easily dismiss what she has to say. But the problem begins with the fact that there is some truth to what she says. We have seen and experienced the kind of shame that she has described. And because so much of what she describes resonates with our personal experiences, we can be tempted to accept her um, conclusion completely. But hidden among those truths are half-truths, subtle twists on the truths, and even outright lies. So that's where we as Christians need to compare Bernays Brown's truth with the truth. We need to examine her words in the light of God's word. So how does the Bible define shame? So let's start by establishing a baseline. Right from the beginning, the biblical authors want us to know that in our pre-fall state, shame did not exist. It was not part of our daily reality, but once sin entered the conversation, suddenly shame is everywhere. We see shame referred to uh, at least 400 different times in the Bible using different words to represent shame. It's not always shame, shame, but like you'll see in some of these examples, um, shame can denote a reproach, right? You know my reproach, my shame, my dishonor. It can be a taunt. Again, we see reproach in there, a warning, a horror, right? to the nations around. Um, it can be a negative covering that everyone can see, so shame has covered the face so people can see that. Again, we see disgrace there. Um, it's also a feeling of nakedness, exposure, so your nakedness shall be uncovered, your disgrace seen. 
And then we have, again, dishonor. We have clothing with shame. Lots of different things. There's a lot of synonyms for shame in the Bible. Shame involves a lowering of status, a diminishment of your reputation, a devastating change in your relationships with both God and others. And it is almost always connected to sin, either someone else's sin against you, but more often because of your own sin. Which leads us to the definition of shame for the weekend. I'm borrowing this one from uh, Jen. Um, So we'll just read this again. Shame is a soul and body response arising from an awareness that you have fallen short of a standard before another. It is a deep sense of nakedness, rejection, and contamination due to your own sin, to someone else's sin, someone sinning against you, or something associated with you. So I just want to quickly compare this definition with Brene Brown's definition because there are some similarities and again, but there's some differences. So we can see that both definitions acknowledge that shame is more than just a mild feeling of discomfort. It is intense, it is painful, and affects both the internal life of the person as well as their physical body. They also, here we go, both definitions also note that shame often starts with an event of some sort, either an action done by us or to us, something left undone, or something we become associated with. But here's where the similarities start to change um, into differences. Brene Brown, again, believes that shame emerges from a faulty belief system. We clearly believe something that isn't true, that we are flawed, which leads to a faulty conclusion that we are unworthy of love and belonging. But Jen is not crawling prey to this reasoning, but rather suggests that we have become of something real. We have fallen short of a standard before another. And when it comes to sin, that shame is a reflection of reality. A rule, a law has actually been broken. And that drives us into the overwhelming awareness of our nakedness, rejection, and contamination before someone else. So let's take a look at the emotional fallout of this, this awareness of nakedness, rejection, and contamination. So what are we going to mean by this? An awareness. We know that something is off. Something's not good. But what are we specifically aware of? We are aware that we feel naked. We feel exposed, unmasked. We feel rejected. We feel tossed aside, cast out. We feel contaminated, stained, dirty, infected. What do these three things have in common? All three involve a disconnection, a rift, a separation of some sort. With the feeling of nakedness, we ourselves pull away from others. We hide, we conceal, we cover. With the feeling of rejection, someone else is casting us aside. We are dismissed, discarded, abandoned. With the feeling of contamination, both parties create the distance with the unclean and avoiding the clean and vice versa. We are avoided and shunned, while at the same time, we isolate and set ourselves apart. Shame is an awareness of reality. Because of our own sin, we are now separated from God. An unholy people now stand apart from a holy God. And here's where the binary choices of whether shame is good or bad, that's not helpful. Shame isn't good or bad. Shame is necessary. So let's think of it this way. Here's an example. If you break your leg, you're going to feel pain. 
Now, pain isn't fun. We could even classify it as something that makes us feel bad, something very unenjoyable. But what in the scenario is the bad thing? Is it the pain? No, it's not the pain. Pain is the alert system, letting you know something is terribly wrong. Eliminating, so pain is, doesn't feel good, but the pain isn't the problem, it's your broken leg. Eliminating the pain would remove the bad feeling, but it also robs us of our ability to notice the problem and then do something about it. Pain is our physical alert system. It tells us something physical is broken. Shame is our emotional alert system. It tells us something relational is broken. Just like pain, shame is that horrible feeling that tells us that something is out of order, our relationship, our standing before someone else, or even ourselves. If we don't know it's broken, we're not going to fix it. We could continue blissfully unaware that something that was whole is now fractured, something that was united is now divided. Shame reveals that loss, awakens that memory of our pre-broken state, and reminds us that things are not as they ought to be. Because at one point, at the very beginning, we did experience this union, this wholeness, this oneness with God. In the beginning, there was no shame. In the beginning, there was God, creator, sustainer, speaking words of life, which transformed into the sun and stars, the earth and sea, plants and animals. And then he created man. And man was different from everything else that God had made. Man was no mere creation. He was created in the likeness, the image of the triune God, relational co-rulers, united to him in a way that no other creature was. There was a sense of unity and openness that we can't even begin to imagine, both between the man and the woman and between humanity and God. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, Naked, fully, fully exposed, fully seen, both by God and man. So we're not comfortable with this idea nowadays, understandably. And it's not just because of the lack of clothing, though. Because nakedness in Eden wasn't just a physical reality, it also represented the emotional and relational reality of the garden. God saw mankind fully, their thoughts, their desires and actions, and the man and the woman both knew it and were not ashamed. There was no gulf between them and God. There wasn't even one between each other. That is why the man and the woman are called one flesh. They were united without division, without separation. There was an openness and a willingness to be known unlike anything we have experienced today. Nothing to hide, nothing to conceal. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying that you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The giver of life bestowed tremendous freedom and responsibility upon mankind with only a single restriction. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it seems like such a simple thing. Just don't do that one thing. But underlying this God-given standard is a deeper question. Do you trust God? Do you trust him to teach you about what good and evil are? Do you trust his timing his plan, do you trust that his standard is meant for our good and his glory? Do we trust him as a life-giving foundation for our lives? 
Within that one restriction in the garden, God is giving the man and the woman a choice. In him, there was unity, fellowship, and life. But apart from him, there could only be the opposite, discord, enmity, and death. And at first, the right choice seemed very clear to them. They did trust God. They knew God. They saw him. They knew his character. They were, knew him and were known by him. They had experienced union and fellowship with their creator. But then in comes the antagonist of our story with a single goal in mind, separation. When the serpent appears in Genesis 3, he's there for one purpose and one pers- purpose only, to drive a wedge between the good creator and his image bearers to draw them away from their calling, away from the source of light and life, and instead steer them towards darkness and death. While their God-given mandate was one of union and dominion, the serpent had a different strategy, divide and conquer. He wanted to separate man from God and align them to himself. And so the infiltration begins with a simple question. Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree of the garden? Were these his words? Is that really the standard that he has given? For Adam and Eve, there was clearly an awareness of the standard, but now suspicion starts to rise as the seeds of the vision take root. Maybe God didn't really say these things. Maybe we misunderstood him. Maybe there's a different way to understand his words. The trust in God that came so easily before suddenly seemed misplaced. Maybe God isn't entirely trustworthy. And then the servant moves to the next level of sowing division, from questions to accusations. You won't die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's not being honest with you, the serpent asserts. In fact, God's holding out on you. His standard is designed to hold you back. This rule is keeping you from being who you are meant to be, from your authentic self. You don't need to put up with these expectations, these standards. The temptation to sin starts with questioning God's authority over our lives. It starts with trusting our own wisdom and our own sense of morality. And Satan wants us to believe that God's standard is bad. Because if we do, we begin to take our first steps away from the light and towards the darkness. He wants to convince us that God's laws are burdensome, that we can be the arbiters of the rules, that we can create our own standards and not be beholden to anyone, especially not God. And then when Adam and Eve weighed those options before them, they decided to agree with the serpent. They sided with death. They did not trust God. They trusted themselves and their own judgment when it came to the standard. They did not seek to honor their creator, but rather to honor themselves and their own wisdom. And they decided that the standard was unnecessary, so they reached up and took of the fruit of the forbidden tree. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is guilt. They have done what they should not have done. They are guilty in the legal sense of failing to follow the standards of God. But mere guilt isn't enough to convince them of their sin. Guilt is simply the fact that a standard has been violated. But knowing that and feeling that 
are two different things. And this is where shame enters. The deed has been done, resulting in their guilt, and now the shame alarm is going to ring as the effects of their sin become immediately apparent. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. With the bite of a forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve became both the seer and the seen. The man looked at the woman and saw someone who had tricked him, who had drawn him into the serpent's lies. The woman looked at the man, the one who was supposed to protect her and teach her, and now only saw his failure to do both. The one flesh union that God intended for them began to crack under the gaze of their newly opened eyes. The nakedness of unity, the security and knowledge that they were truly known before the fall had now transformed into feelings of exposure and fear. Before the fall, they were fully seen and there was freedom and there was joy in that. But now that they had fallen into sin, they no longer wanted to be seen for who they truly were. As a man and a woman who had failed the test, who had sinned against God and each other. And more than that, what they had become now would be clear to God. He would see how they had thrown aside the honor he had bestowed upon them, how he had, they had rejected his law and his standards, and how they had openly and deliberately chosen to believe in themselves rather than him. Sin and guilt lead to separation and shame. But shame likes to multiply and increase. So the first thing that Adam and Eve do now is to try to increase the separation, to escape the scrutiny that now seems to surround them. The man and the woman retreat and conceal themselves. First, they cover their nakedness with a quick crash course in leaf sewing. And if they couldn't remove the shame, they, they're going to cover it. But if that was enough, wasn't enough, they could hide themselves far away from the holy gaze of the one who truly saw them. And we do this too. When the shame hits us, when we become keenly aware of our failings before God, we want to run from him, to hide from his omnipresent eyes. Or we're going to try and make ourselves acceptable to him by clothing ourselves in some way. We try to deal with shame on our own terms and in our own way and in our own strength. And if that doesn't work, we have another solution. Blame. We're going to skip ahead in our story to the confrontation between God and his image bearers. Here we find Adam and Eve trying to avoid God's gaze. And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam here shows real vulnerability. He recognizes the reality of his shame. He acknowledges what shame makes us do and what it makes us feel. He brings it out into the open. Here, I feel shame. It's good. But Adam refuses to see the root of it. He makes it sound as if shame came out of nowhere for no reason. So God gives him a chance to confess and repent. So who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I have commanded you not to eat? How did this happen? What have you done? Who's at fault? Not me, said the man. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And the woman's like, it wasn't me either. It was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. It's not my fault. The fault is somewhere else. It might be God. It might be the standard or other people. But it's not mine. I'm not that bad. I might have done a bad thing, but I'm not a bad person. 
We want to get rid of shame. So we use the two best tactics at our disposal. We either run and hide or we deflect. This isn't my fault. The problem is never me. It couldn't be me. If looking inward is now off limits, then the only alternative is to look outward. So now the problem becomes other people or institutions or society or the patriarchy or capitalism or the church. It's the unrealistic expectations that these groups create that cause our shames. So then the solution is no longer to care about those expectations and just accept yourself for who you are. To reject the standards of others to be enough and instead know that you're completely and totally worthy of love and connection. So we're back to Brene Brown, right? Now again, we're thinking, that sounds great. Maybe I just need to change some of who I am. The internal me is fine. The external me may need a little bit of work, little adjustments, but that's about it. We want to separate behavior from character. We want to differentiate between what I do and who I am. And in that case, the only thing that you or me or Adam and Eve would ever need to do is say, whoops, sorry, won't do that again, and we'll be free and clear. But this is a bandaged situation or bandage solution to a broken leg situation. If you do not feel the pain of, from a broken leg, you're going to conclude it's not a big deal. It's the pain that brings the reality of the solution to your attention, or the, of the situation to your attention. It's the sh- shame is the awareness of a reality, and the reality is our guilt, our failure, our sin. If we have zero awareness of that reality, in other words, if we have no shame, then we're going to be completely oblivious to the problem that our sin has caused. But if we only accept that we're guilty, that we have sinned, but then shut off those alarm bells of shame, we lose our ability to recognize the genuine seriousness of the situation. Our sin is no small matter. Our sin and our guilt have separated us from God. And shame brings that awareness front and center. Because here's the truth, we are bad. Down to our core. Because of sin, we went from a solid foundation, which is the standards and love of God, to a weak one, which is trusting in our own wisdom and our own strength. And now the structure that we have built our lives on is not sound. We can do all the outward adjustments we want, but if our character, our hearts, our desires, our foundations are not changed, then all we've done is slap fresh paint on a condemned building. Guilt will say, I just hung the wrong curtains, right? In the window, that's all. I made a decorating mistake. But shame reminds us that fixing the outside is not going to solve the problem. Shame is alerting us to the fact that something fundamental has changed, both in who we are as people and in our relationship with God. Something foundational has shifted in our lives. And all of the external changes and affirmations and platitudes and inspirational Instagram posts in the world cannot fix this. So what we need is a foundation change. And we cannot do this on our own. We're not the contractors or the builders. We don't know the first thing about fixing ourselves. So we need someone who can break down the damage and rebuild us on a firm foundation, someone who can lead us back from death to life, someone who can bridge the separation that we have created and bring us back into fellowship and union with our Father. So who can actually remove our shame and guilt? So I know the answer. Do you guys know the answer? What's the answer? Yes, it's Jesus. 
is true. Jesus is the solution to our problem. He is the one who bridges the gap. He is the one who removes our shame. And if that's all you needed to hear, I could end my talk now. I've stated the problem. I've given the correct answer. There you go. Good job, me. Thank you all for coming. Have a great rest of your weekend. (laughs) But the truth of these statements can fall as mere platitudes or even cliches if we don't know the actual character of God. I could stand up here all day and tell you God loves you, he has a wonderful plan for your life, but if you have never met our good, good father, you could end up smiling and nodding and thinking, that's nice, that's cool, what a nice thought. And as someone who has been raised in the Christian faith my entire life, I know how easy it is to fall into a superficial relationship with God where I know a lot of facts about him, but I don't know him. But who God is, is revealed in what he does and even in what he doesn't do. Because in the story of the fall, we know what he didn't do. When Adam and Eve took their first bites of the forbidden fruit, God didn't run out as quick as possible, guns a-blazing, ready to dish out some much-needed punishment. He didn't leave the man and the woman hiding in the garden, waiting for them to think about what they've done. He didn't wait for their sewing skills to improve so they could make higher quality clothing. No, he called to them. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, walking in the garden. And the man and the wife and his wife hid themselves in from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? We may hide, but our God seeks Our shame may cause us to turn away from him, but he always turns his face towards us. Where are you? He called out, seeking those who are lost, who are far away, those who feel the weight of their sin. He doesn't need us to explain the situation. He knows our frame. He knows how we have completely and utterly failed, and yet he takes the initiative to find us, to bring us back to him. And so he gives us opportunities, opportunities that shame reveals to us. When we experience shame, we need to start asking ourselves some questions. Why am I feeling shame? Where is this coming from? Is, when the fire alarm goes off, we look for fire. And when we feel shame, we now know that some sort of separation has occurred, and so we need to investigate. Sometimes, there will be times when we find that the source of our shame comes from something outside of ourself or something done to us. But more often than not, we find that the source of our shame is our sin. We chose to make that comment, do that thing, to rely on our own wisdom, to reject God's good standard. And so now that we've discovered the source of the problem, we have a choice to make. We can either allow the feelings of shame to push us into increasing the separation, or we can see shame as an opportunity for confession and repentance. Now the world would have you think that vulnerability is the key, not confession and repentance. They would think that just being open about your struggles and your failings would remove shame's power over your life. And maybe for a time, being vulnerable is going to feel like it's helping. You're going to feel courageous and empathetic and even a little bit victorious over your shame. But there's a difference between unmasking the source of shame and actually removing it. And here's the other side of the problem. You can unmask your own shame, but you're not gonna be able to get rid of it. You can't fix the problem. You can only be aware of it. You can notice and feel the separation, but you cannot bridge the gap. 
So let's go back to our fire alarm metaphor. When you hear the fire alarm, you can do your best to deal with the solution. So yes, you'll admit in a moment of vulnerability, I should not have left those candles there, but it happened, and now your entire living room is ablaze. You can try to douse the flames yourself, but at this point it's grown far beyond your ability to deal with. So the only thing you can do, and the only thing you should do, is call the fire station. Of course, acknowledging you have failed is important, but it is of equal importance to recognize that you cannot fix it on your own and that you need the help of those who can. We don't need more vulnerability. We need more confession and repentance. These are the keys to shame's demise, to confess to God, yes, I have sinned. Yes, I have rebelled against your good standard. I am in need of saving. Help me, Lord. Save me, Lord. Bridge the gap that I have created and bring me back to you. But even though shame can be an excellent alarm system, shame is always going to be a terrible master. When shame becomes disconnected from its God-intended purpose and is instead left unchecked to run amok in our lives, it will hold tremendous power over us. And it will not give up that power without a fight. And so shame will try to convince you that confession and repentance won't solve the problem. God's not going to forgive you. He doesn't want to hear from you. He has rejected you. He sees you as low and unclean and unworthy of saving. He wants nothing to do with you. Have you heard shame tell you those things? Have you felt the temptation to cycle back up to that first solution, to run and hide, to pull away from your friends, your family, your church, your savior? Are you tempted to fix yourself, to make yourself some leaf clothes before going to God? When shame is untethered from its purpose, it paints a picture of God that is categorically false. Because we can see, as we read the Bible, exactly the kind of God he is and how he has revealed himself to us. He is the creator who made us, the giver of life, the one who made us for community and life and union with him. This God full of mercy and compassion and grace for his image bearers. This savior has not given up on his people. There are going to be consequences to our sin. And God laid it out for Adam and Eve that as the world becomes around them is going to become full of hardship and pain and they're going to have to fight for unity with each other as it's not going to be easy anymore. And if we stay in our unredeemed sinful state, we do risk living a life of eternity separated from God. But that's not how the story ends. With both his actions and his words, God shows us how he was not content to leave his creation as they are, far from him, without a chance of saving themselves. Instead, God gave us hope. We can have hope that even as we run further away, that God will pursue us and find us, just as he sought Adam and Eve. And think in the stories of the Bible of those who've run from God who hid because of sin or rebellion or fear. Think of Hagar, think of Moses or Jonah. Think of us. Yes, we also wander, we sin, we rebel, we run. But the Lord is our shepherd, a shepherd who seeks those who are lost and downtrodden and filled with shame. Behold, I, I myself will seek my sheep and I will seek them out. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind the injured and I will strengthen the weak. We can have hope that God will receive us when we turn to him in faith and trust. Think of those stories in the Bible. Who've, those who've turned to God away from their sin 
in faith and trust. Think of Rahab, David, Peter, Paul. These feelings of shame could have kept them from God, but instead they moved in faith towards God by seeking him with their whole hearts. And God didn't leave them in their shame, and God will not leave us in ours. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. O God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Indeed, none who wait on for you shall be put to shame. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says the Lord. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. We can have hope that when we continue to struggle with sin that God will not abandon us or reject us. Maybe you think that one day God will get tired of your backsliding, your failing, your sin. Maybe he will no longer hear you. But look to the story of Israel as they entered the promised land. It didn't take long for them to fall into a cycle of sin and enduring the consequences. But every time they cried out to God in repentance, he always heard their cry and he always sent a deliverer. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. You shall know I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. We can have hope that our nakedness will be covered as God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins instead of leaves. Think of the vision from Zechariah where Joshua stands before God clothed clothed in filthy garments and how those garments are replaced with pure vestments. We have that same hope. I will rejoice in the Lord and my soul shall exalt my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and he has covered me with a robe of righteousness. We have hope that God will cleanse us from the contamination of sins which we cannot do on our own. We know it. King David knew that. But we do know where we can go to to be cleansed. After his sin with Bathsheba, David wrote Psalm 51 where he said, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleannesses. From all of your idols I will cleanse you. I will deliver you from all of your uncleanness. And in all of these things, all of these ways, God is slowly taking away the shame In all of these examples we find in the Old Testament, it's all pointing to that final ultimate hope. Hope that the separation between God and us would come to an end when God defeats the one who drew us away from him. When the head of our enemy would be crushed. Hope that one day our sinful natures would be transformed so that we could finally eat of that tree of life so we could live forever with him in eternal fellowship without any more separation. And what is that hope? Jesus, guys. Back there. We made it back. 
Up until this point in the Bible, we've only seen a foretaste, a hint of what God would do. But now everything we have been seeking, someone to pursue us, to cover us and cleanse us, to end the shame and the separation and reconcile us to God, all of it is fulfilled in Jesus. Because now we don't have a God who seeks us from heaven. We have a God who came to us in the incarnational reality of Christ, the king who lived with the outcasts, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, the shepherd who seeks the lost sheep, the one who loved us first. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We've heard this verse so many times that it might lose its impact on us, but I really want you to notice the words in verse 17. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn us. Condemnation is shame without restraint. It's shame run wild. If we remove shame from its purpose, shame is gonna keep coming and coming and piling on accusations and judgment and condemnation on us without an end in sight but that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to reconcile us, to remove that condemnation. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus doesn't also wait for us to be clean or healthy or clothed or in a good place before coming to us. He comes to us when we are at our lowest, when we feel to the depths of our soul that deep sense of nakedness, rejection, and contamination. He reaches out to the Samaritan woman, a woman full of guilt and shame for her past. He reaches out to the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those lost and rejected and isolated ones, those who knew they were still in sin, those whose shame might cause them to run from him. And some might still run from him to avoid, they might avoid him and try to deal again with their shame on their own terms and in their own ways. But for those who look upon the generous and loving face of Jesus, they will find one who is both willing and able to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. One who will say to them, your sins are forgiven. You don't need to hide anymore. You don't need to feel ashamed You have come to the great physician, to the one who can cleanse you, heal you, and fully reconcile you to God. Because that's it, isn't it? We don't just want our sins forgiven. We need reconciliation. We don't just need the guilt removed for what we've done. We need to have our relationship with God restored. This concept has resonated with me personally. I have a relationship with someone that has been damaged because of sin. And though I've repented for my part and have been told I'm forgiven, the other party doesn't want a relationship with me, doesn't want anything to do with me. And while knowing I'm forgiven is great, it's not enough. The guilt may be gone, but the shame remains. I'm still the rejected one, the abandoned one. I don't want to be told I am loved and forgiven from over there. I want to be told up close, in person, 
Maybe with a hug and a commitment to building up the relationship again. Praise be to God, he does not love us from afar. He does not forgive us from afar. He didn't send us a text message or an email saying you're forgiven. He came to tell us himself in person. That we are not only forgiven, (coughs) but we are reconciled. The guilt is gone and so is the shame. He was forsaken so that we may be restored. He was rejected so that we may be accepted. He hung naked on the cross so that we may be clothed in righteousness. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. We've talked about a lot of things this morning, but now the question remains, what do we do now? It seems too simple. Jesus is gonna take away your shame. And on a surface level, it is that simple because Jesus is, really does, and will take away your shame. But if you expect to come away from this weekend ready to to defeat shame in a single blow, hate to break it to you, but that's not what's gonna happen. The practical working out of fighting and defeating shame takes faith and hope, which means it takes time and practice. When we talk about faith and hope, we're not talking about instantaneous fixes, but a long-term trust in God. So we need to realize it's not a single battle that we need to wage on shame, but an all-out war. So how do we start? First, recognize that shame is your alarm system. It's letting you know that the relationship between you and someone else is broken in some way. In the case of sin, it's alerting you to the fact that you are actively choosing to walk away, to separate yourself from God, to serve another master, and that decision is moving you away from the giver of life and towards death. But what if there are multiple alarms going off? What if every light is flashing and there's alarms blaring and now I'm overwhelmed and I don't know where to start in dealing with them? Because that's often the reality. Sure, we know shame's trying to tell us something, But if there are too many shame alarms going off, we don't know what we're supposed to do. And we can get stuck in a cycle of defeat. So here's a personal example. The relationship I mentioned earlier where I was forgiven but not reconciled. When things first started going down, I was accused of a lot of things. And I didn't know where to start with them. So were they all true? (laughs) Was that really who I was and what I was doing? And I couldn't sleep, I had tremendous anxiety. Um, and the shame alarms just kept blaring day in, day out. It was all I could think about. It consumed my thoughts. So I did the only other thing I could think of. I asked God if those accusations were true. And that became my prayer for months. Lord, please show me the truth. Tell me if what they are saying is true. Tell me what I need to repent of. All of it, some of it, none of it, I'll do that. And when I say I prayed for months, I mean months. It wasn't just a matter of days. And God did not answer immediately, but he answered consistently. And slowly, over time, the noise went down as alarm after alarm grew silent until only a few remained. Finally, I could identify those alarms. I could see what they were alerting me about. And through God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, I was able to deal with the fire. The theme verse of this conference comes from 2 Corinthians 7 where Paul talks about godly grief. 
a grief that moves us towards repentance. Godly grief looks like conviction, like the Holy Spirit prompting us, and it brings in us a desire to grow in holiness, to grow in our relationship with God. It brings life. Conviction is clear. It is rooted in our Father's love for us, bringing to mind specific failings of sin in our lives, but only a few issues at a time, no more. He knows our frame. He knows what we can handle. But what we often experience is not conviction, but condemnation. The heaping on of shame and guilt, which turns into a cacophony of alarms ringing in our mind. This is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. This is the voice of the accuser, who loves nothing more than to separate us from God. This is worldly grief, friends, and it is the kind of grief that will only lead to death. But by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him that for whatever, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we can have confidence before God. Sisters, if shame is pushing you towards condemnation rather than conviction, bring it to God. God is not going to condemn us, reject us, or abandon us. If we feel condemned and overwhelmed with shame, we can know with confidence that this does not come from God. And so we bring the voices of condemnation to him and we're gonna let him sort it out. And he will. It's going to take time, it's going to take prayer. You're going to need help through good friends or a godly biblical counselor. But God is working in and through these things with the ultimate goal of drawing you closer to him. Because when the condemnation finally dies down and conviction is all that remains, we need to do the one thing that will bring us back to him. Confess and repent. Well, I went too far. Here we go. And God is delighted when we do so. Because he wants us to walk with him again, to talk with him, to be in fellowship with him. He does not want you far off, hidden from you. He still touches the untouchables, feasts with the rejected, and lives with the outcasts. To a certain extent, Brene Brown is right. The solution to shame is really is to stop believing lies and to believe the truth. But she's wrong about what the lies and the truth are. For her, the lie is that we are bad and the truth is that we need to believe in ourselves to remove shame. But we know that the lie is that we can fix ourselves and that by sheer willpower, we can remove shame. We need to stop believing that we can rid ourselves of shame and we need to start believing that though we are truly sinful to our core, that God will use our shame, that godly grief, to convict us and bring us back into fellowship with him. And it is his glory to do so. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you are the one who takes away our shame, that you loved us so much that you sent your son. Help us to remember and trust, to be faithful, to keep coming back to you in confession and repentance. And know with full assurity, Lord, that you want us to be in relationship with you. Help us to know you more and more and to love you more and more. In your name alone, amen.